Our text is the Gospel lesson, which was just read. We'll make two points. You can find them on the back inside page of your bulletin. The tomb and the risen Lord. So first, the tomb. I want you to imagine that you are John, the author of this gospel. You have written a detailed account of Jesus' life, his works, his miracles, his teaching, his death, and his burial. And you are John, so you write as a believer, as the one known as the beloved disciple. But you're not... You're not a disinterested bystander. You are not neutral. You love this Jesus. And you are trying to convince your audience of the truth of what you are writing. You are a partisan. Right? You're not some neutral, detached historian. John is an evangelist. And at the end of this gospel, he tells us why he writes. I write so that... For this purpose, the readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, and that by believing, they might have life in his name. Now, you come to your account of the resurrection. And it's an event so singular, so unique and startling, so humanly speaking, preposterous, that you know it will be greeted with skepticism, if not disdain and mocking and ridicule. The ancients thought this idea was as ridiculous as moderns do. So you are John. So who do you bring forth then? As your first critical witness to history's most unbelievable event. You bring forth a woman. A woman. In a culture where women are second-class citizens, where the rabbis would not even instruct them where their testimony is not admissible in a court of law. And not only do you bring forth a woman, you bring forth, in fact, all four Gospels give her prominence as witness to the resurrection. You bring forth one Mary Magdalene. Mary of Magdala, which is a, the town she's from. It's on the Sea of Galilee, a little town called Magdala. She's known as Mary Magdalene. You bring her forth. A woman whom Luke tells us had seven demons cast out of her. Whatever that might mean about her history. A detail in her background, which, by the way, will not serve to enhance her credibility. There is no ancient male writer, especially one who is writing to persuade who would ever do this. Unless, of course, it was true. And you were simply trying to 
tell the story accurately. Only a deep concern, as shown throughout the gospel, only a deep concern for the truth can explain why John's resurrection narrative places this Mary, of all people, as the first witness. She is an unreliable and thus utterly reliable witness. She is God using what the culture thinks of as foolish and weak to shame the so-called wise and the strong. She and a whole host of women had become disciples of Jesus. She and others, it looks like, from the Gospels funded his ministry and followed him to Jerusalem for the last week of his life. She's a witness to the events of Good Friday, and she arrives early on Sunday morning at the tomb, the first day of the week. It's still dark. So we have not only a woman, we have a woman out alone and out alone in the dark in a culture where this is a deeply unadvisable idea. But she loves her Lord, and she's been driven here not by reason, but by grief. She has come to mourn at the tomb. And she goes to the tomb, which was part, the tomb would be sort of a hewn out cave, an above ground cave, like in the side of a hill. It was part of a larger garden area. She gets there, and she sees that the stone which would have taken a couple of men, strong men, to move, she sees the stone was removed from the entrance. It's not even clear that she goes beyond that and looks inside. She knows what has happened. She knows what's happened. It's not uncommon. The body has been taken or stolen. Grave robbing was an issue so much so that the emperor Claudius, and this Claudius does this about 10 years after this event, the emperor Claudius imposed capital punishment for destroying tombs or for removing bodies from tombs. So it's a pervasive phenomenon. She assumes that's what happened. So she comes running to Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loves, John himself, and she says to them, they meaning either the Roman authorities or the Jewish leaders, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. Right? It's important to note at this point, she does not see the, the stone rolled away and think, oh, resurrection. It is the furthest thing from her mind. She assumes a natural human explanation. So then we get some more running. Peter and John running to the tomb. Now this is an incidental, unimportant detail in the story. It doesn't add anything to the substance. But it has a ring of authenticity to it. Of the remembrance of someone who was there. They were running. And John, who writes this, the younger man, outran Peter. And he reaches the tomb first. 
He stoops and he sees the, the strips of linen, the burial cloth lying there. But John doesn't go in. John is the reflective type. He's meditative. He was known in the early church as John the theologian. He looks and he wonders. Peter, however, he's more impetuous and rash. When he gets there, he goes straight in. And he sees the strips of linen as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. It's another vivid detail, a recollection, which no one would likely invent. And here, the head cloth was lying in its place, we're told, separate from the body. Separate from the body linen. So now, now the plot thickens. Because grave robbers would just take the wrapped body. If you're a thief, you're not going to take the time to unwrap the body and then leave the costly linen and costly spices behind. Much less leave them exactly as they were when Jesus' body was laid in the tomb. Just imagine now what Peter and John might be beginning to think at this point. The scene is orderly. There's no violence or disturbance. And it looks... It looks perhaps, perhaps like the body just moved, exited right through the grave cloths. The grave clothes are just lying there like like the discarded chrysalis of a butterfly. Whatever this is, it is not Lazarus coming out of the tomb. Right? Earlier, John tells that story. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. He's got grave clothes all over him. And they all need to be removed. This would be some new order of existence. Now, of course, Jesus spoke a good deal about being raised on the third day. But again, the disciples, like us moderns, were very slow to believe this or to assimilate it or to understand it. So now John, who had arrived first, remember, he goes inside. He sees the clothing as Peter had, and we're told that John saw and believed. He's the first to believe the resurrection. Perhaps tentatively, you know, cautiously, but nonetheless, he believes. So while we speak of the empty tomb, meaning emptied of the body, It's not really technically empty. It's the not quite empty tomb. It has these astonishing grave clothes in it. And on the basis of what was not there, the body, and what was there, the linen in meticulous order, John believes. And Peter, as for Peter, we're told in another gospel, he went away wondering to himself. Notice verse 9, it says, this is an interesting aside. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to be raised from the dead. This is very important to get. They had no preconceived notion or theory about the resurrection that they're trying to protect or to prove. 
Although Jesus told them about it, they didn't anticipate it. They didn't grasp the concept. It was strange to them. What actually happened in history was that the church encountered, or rather was encountered by the living Christ, raised from the dead, and then they understood his teaching. And then they saw from the Old Testament that the Messiah must be raised, that he would suffer, shatter death, and ultimately remake the world. It's always resurrection light, then understanding. And so it was for these Witnesses. So that's the tomb. The second point is the risen Lord. Mary, who had returned to the tomb and apparently missed Peter and John, stands outside crying. Even her mourning is violated by the absence of the body. Without the body, she can't mourn the way she wants to mourn. And she's heartbroken with grief. And we're told that as she's weeping, she looks, bends over, looks inside the tomb. And lo and behold, the tomb is not quite empty again. She sees two angels. Angels means messengers. These are possibly in human form. In white. The color of newness and purity. She sees them seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and one at the foot. Now, this indicates, if we needed more proof, that we're not dealing with grave robbers, but with some sort of divine invasion of the tomb. The body was crucified between two thieves, but thieves do not explain its absence. Right? Its, its former place is now flanked by two angels, and they ask Mary, woman, why are you crying? It's a very gentle kind of reproof. The question implies that by this time, Mary, maybe you should start, just start, to figure out. Crying is not going to be fitting here. And she says again, and she says this with great affection. She says, they've taken my Lord. You can see the intimacy in just every word she uses. They've taken my Lord. And I don't know where they've put him. And then she turns and she sees Jesus standing there, but she doesn't recognize him. His resurrected humanity, his body of glory is both like and unlike his earthly body. So anything like resuscitation is ruled out because a resuscitated Jesus would be immediately recognizable. But this is no disembodied spirit either. Right? This is one who is resurrected, yet not recon- recognizable. Resurrected, but with a not recognizable body. So Jesus repeats the angel's question and says, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? There's a kindness here, but he's also saying something deeper, something along the lines of, what kind of Messiah are you looking for? Right? Who is it, Mary, that you think this Jesus is? Your devotion, real though it is, is too narrow and small. You need to aim higher. 
She thinks he's the gardener. It's a perfectly reasonable assumption. The tomb was in a garden. So she asks him again about the body. And this, this is almost funny here. She says, if you carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll get him. I mean, indeed, Jesus does know something about why the body is missing, about its current location. He can answer this question. And he'll do this with one beautiful word. He says to her, Mary. Now she knows. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name, and they recognize his voice. Now she turns to him. She uses her usual address. She cries out, the text says, Rabboni, which means teacher. She's overjoyed that her bond with her Lord is restored. It's a touching and it's a deeply personal and tender scene. There's a great 20th century British scholar named C.H. Dodd who says about this scene, he says, There is something indefinably firsthand about it. There is nothing quite like it in the Gospels. Is there, he asks, anything like it in all ancient literature? Mary is now clinging to Jesus, probably to his feet. But the relationship is different. This Jesus can't be captured or contained. This is the risen one destined for heavenly enthronement. So do not hold on to me, he says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Rather, he commissions her as witness. The first proclaimer of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene. Again, a detail no one seeking credibility would invent. Go, he says, instead to my brothers. Brothers? That's an amazing designation. I don't want to slide over it. Because he's raised, we can share his sonship. You can be a brother or a sister, a sibling of Jesus, and thus a child of God through faith in the risen one. Right? You can be a brother or sister, a sibling of Jesus, and thus a child of God through faith in the risen one. Go to my brothers, he says. And tell them I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Jesus is, of course, the unique singular son. But he says here, in my resurrection, I have made my God your God, my father your father. And so Mary goes. Mary Magdalene goes to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. This is more than even John could say. And she tells them about what Jesus said to her. And you know what? We know this from the other Gospels. This kind of news, it was greeted with healthy doses of skepticism. These are not gullible people. It's a modern conceit to assume that every ancient person was walking around assuming crazy stuff like this happened all the time. They do not believe without evidence. Jesus would yet appear multiple times to various groups to secure the faith of the early community. But Mary is not hallucinating, and soon, before Jesus ascends, 
and we heard this in the New Testament lesson from 1 Corinthians this morning, many others, hundreds, six or seven hundred witnesses would say with Mary, I have seen the Lord. The early church knows these witnesses. In that reading from 1 Corinthians, Paul says, and the Lord appeared. Actually, Paul knows the order of the appearances. He knows the sequences. He knows who was appeared to. You would know this if you were in the early church. It's a pretty important piece of news, information, right? And then Paul says, after that, he appeared to over, not 500, but over 500 people at one time. And then I don't know if you caught this when it was read, but then he says this, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Not only, does he, not only did the church know who the witnesses were, they knew which ones had died and which ones were still living. Mary is not hallucinating. She's going to be joined by hundreds who say, I have seen the Lord. But for now, for now, Mary alone, of all people, Mary Magdalene alone has seen and touched and spoken with the risen Lord. So that is the account of John, the beloved disciple. It's the account of a firsthand eyewitness to Christ's life and death. It's the account of one who was inside the empty and not quite empty tomb. And seeing no body saw the folded grave clothes. And it is a narrative that no one who was trying to make this up or even willing to embellish to persuade skeptics would ever write. Not only is it full of these small, vivid, first-hand touches... It has Mary Magdalene as the first witness. Again, a ridiculous way to present this to the ancient world. Unless it was true. Now you can be sure that if this tomb was not empty, or if the body of Jesus had been produced, there would be no Christian faith. There would be no ignition for the spreading worldwide proclamation of the gospel which occurred on the heels of this event. Could the disciples have stolen the body? I mean, it's pretty clear from the beginning that they're shocked by its absence. But if they did, how does one explain their new joy and their transformed lives, their witness They're rising from the ashes of the shattering events of the past week and their master's execution. And then they're proceeding to suffer martyrdom for the truth of the resurrection. This would be a form of pathological lying unknown in history. Could the Roman or Jewish authorities have removed the body? Well, if so, why didn't they they just produce it? That would have stopped the fire, the spreading Christian movement, in its tracks. For remember, Christians did not claim, and they do not claim, that Jesus lived on in their hearts. Or that Jesus lived on as an idea. Or as a beloved teacher of morals. Or that Jesus lived on in spirit. They proclaimed that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And they understood that if that claim was false, there was nothing left to defend. As John Updike put it, 
in his seven stanzas at Easter. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. If anyone knew where this body was, it was the Roman and Jewish authorities for whom Jesus created so much trouble and grief. Those who guarded the tomb failed to produce the body as the proclamation of these previously crushed and fearful disciples spreads throughout Jerusalem. He is risen. So the narrative itself, the appearances... The empty but not quite empty tomb, the sheer existence of the church, all cry out for the authenticity and the reality of this account. It remains then for us to respond. The resurrected Lord is not an artifact of history. He speaks, present tense, to his sheep personally. He who is risen still calls out the name of his people. Right? The confession, Jesus is risen, is a living, present tense reality. Is risen. And through this preached word, this morning, this risen Jesus is summoning you personally to believe the testimony. Because it's deeply rational testimony. The testimony written for us in the gospel. Because he lives, his God can be your God. His Father can be your Father. You are called, summoned to be a child of God by the risen Christ right here, right now. Do not harden your hearts. See the body missing. See the grave clothes folded. Hear your name called. And with John and with Mary, the first eyewitness, believe. Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen.